Welcome to Journey to the Stage. This is Brian Fraser, where we explore today's projects of our featured artist, but we always start at the beginning. Our podcast opening song is an excerpt from the song titled Arise and Shine, written by a good friend of mine, Chris Taylor, who's a musical visual artist. You can check out Chris's work at ChrisTaylorWorld.com. Before we begin our chat today, if, if you enjoy this conversation in this episode, please consider following or subscribing to Journey to the Stage wherever you listen or leave it a nice review. And it's always very, very helpful to continue to build an audience. This is episode 11, and my special guest today is Wesley Stace, who previously went by the stage name John Wesley Harding. Wesley is a British-born singer, songwriter, and recording artist. He is also an acclaimed author who has penned four novels to date and is the creator of a variety show called John Wesley Harding's Cabinet of Wonders. Mr. Wesley Stace, welcome to Journey to the Stage. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. I'm so glad you joined me. And there's so much really to dive into. And I really, my preparation for this podcast was was really fun. Along with the things that I mentioned above, you've also been a reviewer for publications like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times and others. You've released about 25 albums, plus EPs and compilations and collaborations. And I thought this was interesting. You've also co-taught a class at Princeton University on songwriting and had an English class dedicated to examining your lyrics and novels. So there's there's quite a bit to explore. We obviously won't be able to dive into all of those things, but there is much to cover here. Or before we dive into the new album, let's take a, a little bit of a, a look back. So you were born in England, in Hastings, a little uh, seaside town. What was that like growing up in uh, Sussex? Well, Sussex is definitely my home. Uh, but, you know, I went to boarding school at the age of seven. Then I went to another school in Canterbury when I was 13. And then I went to university when I was whatever, 18. So I always felt, I mean, much as I'm from Hastings and do very much relate to it as my home, I wasn't there as, as much as many people who were born there were there. Um, plus, my mother just died a couple of years ago. And now my links oh, to Hastings sorry. are far less than they were before but it's a beautiful town shingly beaches and old victorian piers and old pubs and you know there's a new part of hastings kind of gross and there's an old part of hastings that's very beautiful and there's a ruined castle and you know it's 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 lovely it's a, it's a very nice place to be from and i very very much relate to it as my home i still have a bunch of friends there and I try and go there every single time I'm in England. You know, you couldn't walk anywhere. I mean, you could. You could walk into Hastings, but it took <laughs> an hour. And you could walk into Ryder, but that took two hours. So, you know, we were a little cut off. And unless someone could give you a lift somewhere, I learned to play the harmonica walking back from the bus at the top of my road. That's a hundred. Nice. And that's not a nice memory that of me as Huck Finn. <laughs> that's genuinely me getting off the bus and picking out tunes as I walked all the way down the hill. That is beautiful. Since I was a very, very young child, I have wanted to visit England. My love for history is great. The appeal to English history is so rich and deep within me. I have longed to spend a summer in the Cotswolds and it is on my bucket list to be able to do this at some point. Lovely. 
was your home a, a home where there was a lot of music playing? And if so, does that music still have influence upon you? It hugely does have an influence on me, but none of that music is rock music. My Neither mm -hmm. of my parents ever bought, uh, my dad's still alive, he's 80 this year, neither my mother nor my father ever bought a, a pop music record or rock record. But that's not to say there wasn't a lot of music. My mother was a, you know, singing teacher, a singer herself, latterly the president of the Hastings Music Festival, which was quite a big deal, which is why when she died, you know, we had a pretty much sold out show in the town theater and Petula Clark came to sing at it. And I mean, it wow. was a, a wonderful evening in tribute to my mum, you know, uh, because she was a beloved musical personage around town and she sang all the time and whether it was Gilbert and Sullivan or mm -hmm. the classical you know songs of Schumann and Schubert or my dad playing the piano which he did a lot or my sister's singing and taking ballet lessons or my mother's own career, which I remember when she was Aeneas in Purcell's opera Dido and Aeneas. And bizarrely, you know, full circle, last year I wrote the libretto for a, an opera, which is actually going to be in San Francisco next November. The Philharmonia oh, okay. Baroque are putting it on November 2023. They commissioned it. They're one of the commissioners of the opera. So I'll be out in San Francisco for that. And and that was called Dido's Ghost. And it's and it has Dido and Aeneas, in which my mother was when I was a you know, very young, uh, as the central part of the opera. So yes, music wow. was huge. And though it isn't the kind of music I've ended up making, and though my early attempts at making music, piano and clarinet were largely unpleasurable and unsuccessful, and I was very unenthusiastic <laughs> about it, yet the encouragement of music was everything. And when I found the instrument I wanted to play, the guitar, as a medium for the dissemination and broadcast of my genius 15-year-old, 16-year-old poetry, then once I discovered the guitar uh, and taught myself, you know, that was felt incredibly natural to play a musical instrument on, on stage or, or in private. Now, when you first started buying your own albums of your own music, to your own taste, what were you buying in those early days? Well, it's very interesting, actually, because the first single I was ever bought that I loved when I was a kid was the Alan Price set, the Alan Price set. That's Alan Price from the animals who annoyed all the rest of the animals by basically stealing the copyright to House of the Rising Sun and cutting them all out of it and having to leave. Oh, wow. and yeah, so that's that Alan Price. Alan Price on Decca singing Simon Smith and the Amazing Dancing Bear. Now that is by Randy Newman. And at the age of six, that was my favorite song in the world. My mum bought me the single of it. So it was the, definitely the first single that I ever owned. I've still got it. And that is a Randy Newman song. And pretty much that's the key to my whole songwriting ever since is a swinging Alan Price song but with a Randy Newman lyric. And that, I think it's remarkable, really, that that was such a influential song and such early music. But in answer to your question, when I got my first pay packet for working in the grandmotherly restaurant I mentioned earlier, I bought, and this will tell you what year it was, the Cars' first album, Roxy Music's Manifesto, 
and something else. And then with my second pay packet, I bought Bob Dylan at the Budokan. And that was the album that really changed it for me because it had that huge lyric book in it. Absolutely. Uh, and reading those lyrics on the bus on the way home, not really knowing what I was going to hear at all. I mean, I spent a lot of money to get that, you know, probably Japanese import then. And I mean, it just blew my mind. And then, of course, you get all these soupy 78 tour arrangements of those songs rather than, you know, and then you hear the original of Times They're Changing or All I Want to Do. I mean, Budokan was my the first thing I heard by him. But right. here's the real truth. What blew me away was ABBA on the Eurovision Song Contest in when wow. I was seven or eight, watching them do Waterloo. I mean, that is a seminal, and for many people, but the tr thing with ABBA is I never kind of gave up liking them. I always just mm -hmm. wanted my music kind of to be as much like ABBA as possible, but with Clever Clogs lyrics. And mm -hmm. whereas what happened with most people with ABBA was everybody liked it, and then it went away for a long time, and then now it's right. regarded as the classic that it should be. So I was very tenacious in my ABBA, and I've always had a rather, people find it a rather surprising, I don't know why people would think that, that but a very, very sweet tooth when it comes to pop music. And, you know, that's why one of the first things I cut was Like a Prayer by Madonna when people weren't doing that kind of thing acoustically very much. It's much more common now. There's that whole coffee house serious channel that's basically, you know, everybody doing acoustic versions of every song you've ever heard. But back then, Aztec Camera did Jump by Van Halen uh, when I was at university. And I remember hearing that and going, oh, that's, that's a good move. And so when I was on Sire, I cut Like a Prayer because I loved it. Uh, and um, so I've always had a very sweet tooth for my pop music and it's the same now, except now it's all, all a bit more easy listening and lounge for me. Like the only channel I listen to on Sirius, apart from MSNBC, is a wonderful channel called the Escape Channel. That's basically the, you know, easy listening, souped up strings. I just love it. It makes me so relaxed and I'm really oh, yeah. comfortable with it. <laughs> well, and I'm not surprised to hear... Obviously, Bob Dylan's influence on your music is very, very prominent, very easy to see from the name, the stage name you of assumed yes. to having the Dinah Blob album, which yeah. I find hilarious. But also with Randy Newman's influence, he's a bit of a cheeky writer. And I could see how his personality really comes out in his music. And I, I think the same is absolutely true of you. To me, it seems like you are a person who's tongue is never too far from their cheek so it's it's really not surprising whatsoever well it, yeah i mean it, it, i mean you're right I, I wouldn't argue with any of that i think there's a thing with the randy newman narrator that he cornered in rock music really in singer songwriter music that nobody else was really doing which was there is a narrator of the song and it isn't randy newman and yet it's elements of Randy Newman, be it a redneck or a lecherous old man or baby, you can keep your hat on. And he cornered that. He was brilliant at that and still is, I'm sure, mm -hmm. if he if he would wanted to be so or put out an album tomorrow. I mean, really, the point of my not that I need to jump to this, but really kind of the point of late style was me going, I've always made my music in this kind of folk because I have to tell you, nobody's ever really compared me to Bob Dylan. 
I mean, they don't really compare people to Bob right, Dylan. Right. But the thing with me was, I, I liked Bob Dylan, and that makes you want to think about lyrics and the the mm-hmm. millions of things you can do with them. But really, it was listening to the what I would call the new Dylans, uh, John Prine, Steve Goodman to a lesser extent, Phil Oakes, who was a old Dylan. It was really listening to people like John Prine. Mm-hmm. That was what made me feel that I could, what he did seemed more attainable to me and possible right. to do. So I set off on a kind of folk rock journey with as much Abra as I could possibly throw in there for the, from, from the beginning of my sire career. And then towards the end of the sire time, I, I realized that there wasn't enough of me on the recordings, that I was always kind of slightly overwhelmed by the band, which was the attractions then. And so I set my the task to learn how to make records so my guitar, my message, my voice was at the mm-hmm. forefront of it. And that became the next right. kind of part of the journey. But it always remained in a kind of folk rock world it, you know like the sound of his own voice that i made with the decemberists the album i made with the right. jayhawks wesley stacy's mm-hmm. john wesley harding you know all these it always and with the new album late style what i realized was there's been many you know white male lyricists and mm-hmm. bob dylan is a track and john prine is a track of them but there's also this mose allison randy newman Tom Lehrer, even, you know, those kind of people, Bob Dura, much jazzier. And I thought, why can't I do that? That's what I listen to is I listen to much jazzier music. Why can't I have my music be stylish and and sound like, you know, it's because I, I just saw myself singing my pointed, you know, sometimes political, sometimes romantic, sometimes goofy lyrics over that kind of setting. And so that's why Late Style finally came around because I wanted to not have the backdrop be purely folk rock the whole time or rock. Let's pause here and let's listen to one of the cuts from your new album, Late Style. It's it's the opening track. It's where the bands are. And then we'll chat about it after. up baby oh what a beautiful vibe right backstage where the bands are baby where it's emerald green and it's fit for a queen and the glamour cannot be described you wanna be where the bands are baby the cool table set just for you Right back where the bands are, baby There are no plastic forks Just the popping of corks And the catering's all caught on blue And it's somebody's birthday Or seems like it is Because everything's free And there's plenty of this You wanna be where the bands are, baby you be the cat with the cream Right back where the bands are, baby Not in line on the street for a sad meet and greet With a drummer who spent his per diem And it's like an apartment Much nicer than yours And the bathroom graffiti is 
by George Bernard Shaw. Wesley, this whole album to me is is a little bit of a time machine. When I when I listen to this, it is like jumping back to the fifties and walking into a lounge with cigarette smoke in the air and people having a martini, listening to the band. How did you arrive at? You just alluded alluded to this a little bit before the song, but how did you aim for this period and capture that sound so well? Well, there's a number of answers to that question. Um, one is that I I started, I had this bunch of lyrics that I'd written first. I really liked them. I tried to write the songs that I've been explaining that I wanted, you know, a jazzier kind of song. And I wrote this one called Can't Read the Signs and I recorded it with some friends and I realized it it was great, but it just sounded like all the other songs, you know, it was nice and but it wasn't what I wanted and then I went to my MD for the cabinet of wonders and I said you know all this music I like you're a genius give me this give me the tune give me the song we'll write the album together if it works out and he gave me where the bands are the one you've just heard and in Mm -hmm. fact he gave me a demo version of what you've just heard because all that happened to that original demo he gave me was that we replaced all the fake instruments with real instruments and and then I I, re- I sang the vocal that you've got in front of you and we chucked a trumpet solo, which is note for note, the first solo he sent me on that demo tape. And so really? that is, wow. yeah, it's three years ago now. And so nice. we were working, I heard, and, and another one called The Impossible She, I think those were the, the two on the first go. And he just looked at my, I think I sent him 15, 16 lyrics, 20 maybe. And he picked where the bands are and sent me back that melody. And because we've been making music together at the Cabinet of Wonders for 10 years, we've traveled around in cars, we've listened to music together, we've dissected it mm-hmm. together, we've made music together, we've rapped about music together, you know, and he knows what I like and he knows what I can and cannot be articulate about. You know, I don't know the major. I know the major seven chords. I don't know the, you know, major 13 plus seven. I just don't know how to do that. And that's right, all right. part of the palette that he uses. And 
he did a couple of them and I just loved them. And I said, let's make the album yeah. together. You know, so so that's one answer to your question. It, one of the things I really appreciate about you as an artist is is you are not one to be to be pigeonholed. In fact, there seems to be a continual pressing or, or striving for variety. You'd mentioned uh, the sound of your of his own voice that you recorded with the Decemberists and the Wesley Stace's John Wesley Harding album you did with the Jayhawks. And then you also recorded with Minus Five. You're striving for, for change in your music. And I find that to be very refreshing. It's very interesting. I always think that the major mistake, not that it keeps me up at night, that I made was really after Here Comes the Groom, the first American album, attained a bit of critical success in America, Sire were quite surprised by that. Although they were always supportive of me, but they were quite surprised. And basically they said, go, well, go and do the same thing again. Maybe it'll work twice, but add some horns. Or I said, yeah, let's, you know, and the really, the only major difference between the first and the second album, it's a bit, got a few more instruments on it and more backing mm -hmm. singers. I mean, and what I really should have made for the second album was the third album, if you know what I mean, a much more acoustic, uh, challenging kind of a thing. And that's always made me think, well, just don't do the same thing again. You know, do a different thing. And I don't think that's paid off in any way whatsoever, but it's kept me very happy doing it. And I think sure. it kept the people who like my music very happy that the consistency in all this music is me and my voice and my lyrics. The rest right. of it is kind of, you know, it's it's window dressing. It's how you choose to do it. By the time we got to Awake, I was really enjoying, you know, the Dr. Dre productions of, of Snoop and various other people and trying to emulate some of those sounds just because it's what I, what I liked. But I think Awake right. came as a bit of a shock to some of my fans. But I mean, you have to do what you want to do. And I always think that to never have had... <laughs> to be a one hit wonder is very difficult because mm -hmm. you have to endlessly be known by that thing that is the one thing you're asked to do however much you want right. to move on whereas although I've had little things that have popped up in the marketplace like I'm wrong about everything that a bunch of people know because it was on high fidelity soundtrack or you know, whatever it is or, or like a prayer that people know because it, it made a bit of a splash but I always think that I've always had to keep whatever level I am possibly able to do. I've had to keep my game sharp and mm -hmm. I've had to keep working. I've never had the ability or, or the safety net to coast. Right. I've always had to work very hard. And that's made every album a unique and distinct challenge and different thing because I don't think see when I was growing up there were so many production changes that if you liked a singer called John Hyatt for example like uh -huh. John Hyatt you had to I mean you know he made synthy albums he made albums with that big drum sound at the time he made had to right. then he then he kind of had to did it brought it back for bring the family which is an amazing record which was just you know, Nick Lowe, Ry Cooder, Jim Keltner, and John Hyatt. Then he got his own band. Then he settled back again and started. And you, you, you got really used to songwriters being totally at the mercy 
of whatever was the popular production sound that right. producers and A&R people were encouraging them to make. And I never, apart from my first two albums, which, and Andy Paley was the most retro person and could not be described as the person who was trying to keep up with the trends at all. If he could have recorded it at <laughs> Sun Studios with two microphones, he'd have been very happy. And I would have nice. totally supported that move. But I, I've always wanted to avoid doing whatever things sound like not out of contrariness but because mm -hmm. of just because of my tastes in various things the only album that probably bisected with things a little bit was the album called a man with no shadow uh mm -hmm. that that was released it had a very checkered release history and was finally released as adam's apple on another label and then was right. finally re-released by Yet Rock in its original configuration as The Man With No Shadow. And that album was so well produced by Julian Raymond, and he just won a Grammy for working with Chris Perez or someone. And he knew how to make those kind of albums and to make someone like me sound good. And that was a, a once in a million thing that I was able to do. And he only, I think he only produced four songs on the record anyway, or five, six songs on the record. And the other half was done by another excellent producer. Right. I really appreciate your answer. And if, if we look at the artists who have great impact, they are never making the same album twice. They are constantly striving. You look at, I mean, the Beatles are a great example. You look at bands like Led Zeppelin, Paul Simon. I mean, they're, they're, they're adapting and they're changing. They're never, they're never satisfied with where they've been and almost to, an, to a degree, if you look at artists like Paul Simon, kind of resisted some of those back tunes a little bit because he wanted to keep moving ahead and challenging himself. And I just, I love that. If we could for a second, I want to go back to, to late style because I really, I love the album cover. And I think one of the things that is lost in the digital age of music is the album cover. That is such a great piece. It has the classic design that we would find on those great jazz albums of the fifties that maybe came out of like, you know, blue note records or something like that. Yeah. They had a, a designer, um, Reed, uh, Reed miles who designed so many of their beautiful and stylized modern stylized album covers who did the, the artwork for this. Cause they did an exceptional job. Well, the I was sitting in bed one morning scrolling in, you know, Twitter as you do before I got up to take my, kids to school and I saw this guy called Tony Stella who who makes film posters and does all kinds of design and he every now and then would kind of post a bucket load of album covers he'd done and some of the album covers he'd done were one was Art Tatum solo a kind of compilation for presumably Blue Note and then another's Monk you know I mean there was lots of them and he did some Frank Sinatra ones. He'd also done fantastically beautiful m movie posters. He did the poster and the paperback covers for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the last Tarantino. He did the big poster for the Underground Railroad that was a big billboard everywhere for a bit. Right. And I literally, I saw this and I just went, this is so perfect. If I can afford it so effortlessly, it's not a pastiche of something that's been, it's just that his style is effortlessly what I need it to be. I had no idea what the image would be or what his process was, or indeed how much he'd cost. 
because it's obvious he's working the whole time. So I right. found his website. I contacted him. I said, you know, he said, you know, tell me about the music. I said, well, it's kind of jazzy, you know, all, not all my stuff is, but, you know, there's a couple of bossa novas on there. And, and he was like, oh, mm -hmm. I like the sound of that. Give me a little. And then he said, well, here's what I need from you. And we talked about a price. And, and I went up to City Winery at Boston and my vision for the album bizarrely was me playing the piano that's what i wanted wow. i thought it would look really friendly and yeah rather than posed and natural because the image had to be you know that moment at the end of the night when someone people always say to me why should i wear a real bow tie not a fake bow tie and the answer is <laughs> because if you wear a fake bow tie you can't do that thing where at the end of the night you just pull it and it's you know hangs around your neck right because that's <laughs> true, <the> true. <laughs> that's the coolest look in the world two o'clock you're walking home street lamp above you so i i had this image of a kind of a guy and that these songs should be sung kind of by a guy in a nightclub and it would be two in the morning and you know it's the but he's still playing you know maybe with a cigarette on the but i didn't want it to look too noirish i wanted it to be bright and beautiful he handed me two one was terrible and the other was this and he said <laughs> you know i'm not happy with one of them but i'll send it to you anyway but what about this one? And I was like, oh, God, it's my dream come true. Because that cover right. says everything about the album. Part of the context for this album was we were really getting going on it before COVID hit. And then when COVID hit two years ago, right, when COVID hit, I didn't want to do anything with it. I thought, well, let's just all hunker down. Then after about six or eight months of COVID, I was like, maybe I should put out what we have. I mean, maybe it sounds good. And then I thought about that and I didn't like that idea because everybody was kind of putting out scruffy demos and looking unshaven, right, right. wearing their PJs, doing Zoom concerts for people. And I don't disdain <laughs> that. That's a great thing to do, right. but it's not for me. And it turns out, age 56, I've realized that there's a kind of bar of stylishness beyond which I will not allow myself to fall. And suddenly I thought, no, 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 forget putting out these demos. We've got to make these demos into the most beautiful thing you've ever heard. And the cover was all part of that. And the stylishness of the music was all part of that. And my delivery mm -hmm. was all part of it. And so, and so in the end, uh, I think a beautiful thing that I hope makes the world, uh, you know, a bit more, a bit lovelier. I didn't want to put out something scruffy. I can do that any time I want. I wanted this to be just chef's kiss, beautiful. What a phrase. I have never heard that phrase before. I'm going to have to to remember that one. Let's listen to another track from the album. The album, of course, is Late Style. Let's play All the Use, which might be my favorite cut from the album. I really love this. Before we play it, what, what can you tell us about this song? Well, it's also, when we do this one live, uh, we, we tend to play the whole album live. And when, I, when we do this one, this is the one I introduced David before and say that this is the one I most associate with him because there is no way I could have written this melody on my own. I could have come up with an idea of it, but there's no way I could have arranged it in such a way to make it sound like this or come up with the chords that would have suggested it. So this really, to me, it's so romantic sounding. Mm -hmm. The lyric is quite, a f like all my lyrics, it's a bit, it's, it's a bit double edged in many ways, the lyric, but 
I just think that, you know, it's like when you watch a 60s movie and there's a scene in a ski chalet where everybody's having cocktails, an incredibly good-looking man walks across, you know, the, the, the screen towards a woman who's wearing a dynamite kind of dress and sipping a cocktail and that that's the this is the music that would accompany that. And that's right. It's, and it's exactly yeah. what I wanted the music to sound like. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. Let's take a listen to it. Could 
that lyric, you know, it's it's always something, but sometimes it's nothing with you. I can't leave you alone. And how could you have known what you knew? I mean, to me, that's I don't know where that comes from within me. I don't know what I was thinking about, but I think I was trying to write a lyric as romantic as this music, even though I didn't know what the music was when I wrote it, if you see what I mean. Right. No, that makes sense. You guys really nailed the the feeling of those old records, which I would imagine is not easy to do. Melodically, the instrumentation, the lyrics, as we've talked about, was it hard for you to, and your collaborator, David, to get into that groove? And once you were there, was there any doubt that that you actually were accomplishing what you set out to accomplish? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think the clever thing, or rather the smart decision we made, was to be minimal. There's actually not a lot of stuff on on any of the songs. I mean, where the bands are is, you know, that keyboard, organ, Mm -hmm. bit of piano, no acoustic. See, that's the thing. There's no acoustic guitar on anything. I mean, there are a couple of places. But, you know, every, every one of every other of all my records has acoustic guitar strummed on every or picked on every single song. And that's the major, right. I mean, that's the major difference. And in fact, a incredibly interesting part of the process was I've just done this series that if anybody's interested, they could look on YouTube called Late Style Solo Acoustic or something, or the Acoustic Late Style, where I played all 12 songs from Late Style acoustically. No big deal, you might think. But of course, what I was actually doing was taking these chords that I don't know how to play and trying to make these beautiful recordings on late style into a solo acoustic song, which they were never meant to be or intended to be that way. So some that are, you know, so some like there's one called Everything All The Time and the version I play of it's a finger picking folk version. There's one called Just Saying that the version I play is kind of like a Rev Gary Davis kind of thing. You know, it's because I had to make them live in a way that I felt was appropriate to the song, but within the confines of my acoustic guitar ability. And I'm not bad, you know, but still there were chord shapes and things I had come to understand that were complicated and difficult for me to do. Uh, And so that was a really interesting process. I can imagine, well, jazz chords, they're they're because they're stretched out so far, they're they're not easy to play. They have their their own voice, their own signature to those. In fact, that was actually going to be one of the questions I was going to ask is how you could shape those for live performance if you did want to do solo acoustic, but you really touched on that already. Well, when when we play when I play it with the late style band, it, it sounds exactly like the record. I mean not quite exactly, but you know, it sounds like the record. We've got no trumpets and but we've got synths that make trumpet like noises but you know what was interesting was going you know where the bands are is i want to be where the bands are and learning i mean it's really difficult to you know if i was a you know that doesn't sound right at all it sounds like folk rock so i came up with which isn't quite right but at least it's something i can play and then, right. then you get you know, is all the users. You know, I, I can't, I can't remember. 
they're difficult. It's difficult to work out. <laughs> sure, sure. I, I I can really appreciate that you would even try because to take that, you know, that sound of the band playing those great jazz chords and that swanky feel to even attempt to draw that into an acoustic so you could play it. So I, I actually really appreciate that. Most, I think most people would say, I oh, forget it all. You know, I'm maybe not going to tour this album or, you know. Well, well, you know, I mean, the fact is most of the touring that I do is solo or in a duo format. And I don't want to not be representing these songs on there. So to me, I consider it my duty uh, as a songwriter to be able to master this song. So I, if some, it would be very embarrassing to me, to me, maybe not for everybody, if you went on a radio show and they go, you know what song I love? All the U's. Will you play that one for it, for us? And no, I can't. That would be really bad. Where can people pick up Late Style? I, I am a proponent of people actually buying physical copies. Where's the best place to pick up? Because I know you have uh, actual albums, you have CDs. What's the best place for that? Well, the LP you can only get through me. So if anybody wants the vinyl, you have to go to you know wesleystace.com and there's a shop. Uh, the CD you can also get from the shop, but you could equally get it anywhere you liked, including your local record store, who I'm sure would happily order it. They can't order the LP. Only I have that. Um, and then, of course, it's on, you know, all the various. Oh, you're not talking about digital, but it's obviously available in all those places. But the CD sure. and the LP, I mean, let me be your first shop stop for that. Although the CD you can certainly get from other places. Right. And I mentioned many many times that in the digital age it is so great for users we have a jukebox at our fingers but for artists for singers songwriters producers streaming is is just highway robbery so when you can buy directly from the artists like you can on wesley's store that is definitely the place to do that one thing i wanted to uh, talk about is just kind of we get towards the end of our time here tell us about john wesley harding's cabinet of wonders well, well now it's wesley stace's cabinet of wonders of course um, oh okay yeah it did, it did change when i did um it's a variety show when i had my first novel out oh no 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 when i had a new album out my publicist said oh why don't you get some of your writer friends and some of your music friends to do a show and years before I'd done a show called the John Wesley Harding Medicine Show at the Mean Fiddler in London in the late 80s when my address book was a good deal thinner than it is now. And, you know, so we started doing this show and pretty much came together on the very first show. I had this format where I read poems about people and then everybody did a few songs and the band, they need to do them with my band or not. And, and I mean, the amazing thing is 10 years later, it's our hundredth show on the 20th of March, a beautiful show wow. uh, at the city winery with a uh, Carl Newman from the new pornographer, Stephen Merritt from the magnetic fields, Josh Ritter, uh, Bridget, uh, St. John and Steve Gunn, uh, David Cross, Amber Tamblin and Eugene Merman, a beautiful nice. show. Uh, that's all sold out, obviously, as you can imagine. And we had a fantastic show in last show we did in San Francisco is at the Jewish Community Center. I think it's called the JCC and Joan mm -hmm. Baez and Barry Gifford and wow. um, Langhorn Slim and Ryan Miller from Guster. And the, the Cabinet Wonders is a, a large umbrella, which I hold up and under which many people can shelter with me. I try and make it a cross between kind of Mike Douglas chat show and the best benefit you've ever seen, 
where nothing went right. wrong and people weren't shuffling on stage, not knowing where to plug in. Now, are you planning on writing another novel? It's been it's been a few years since your last novel came out. Is that something you have a, an itch to do? Oh, I, it's something I am doing. But also I will tell you that very interestingly, my last published novel, but when I finished writing my fourth novel, that was when I started doing The Cabinet of Wonders. And uh, that okay. tells you everything you need to know about how much time mm -hmm. The Cabinet of Wonders takes up in my creative life. Beautiful. So here's a question for you. If Wesley Stace had a chance to sit down with the John Wesley Harding that we see on the cover of Here Comes the Groom, what would he say? Well, that's a very good question that I wouldn't say I'd necessarily ever been asked. And I won't even give it a kind of smart alecky answer because there are lots of things I could admit that right off the top of my head none of which really would would be a helpful answer on any level though probably quite funny I think <laughs> I would say I mean you know it might sound a bit sentimental but I think I would say you know keep making those decisions that you're making because it will end up all right and you will be you know, don't rest on your laurels, but, you know, you will still be making music 32 years after this record and people wow. will still be paying attention. And you're at the beginning of a very long journey. And the only way it works is because, you know, you keep doing what you want to do. Keep doing what you want to do. It will work out OK. I love that. Now, one, one last hypothetical before we wrap up our time. If you've been in situations like this, but if you were in a classroom with young men and women who were considering pursuing a life of making music, what is one thing or two things that you would share with them to put them on a the right trajectory? Don't leave your wallet in the dressing room. Uh, that's one. Two, much more seriously, never write what you think will sell unless it makes you happy to do that. Because if you are aiming for some kind of lowest common denominator thing where you are kind of dumbing it down because you think that might be what pays or allows you to make a living doing it unless you are happy with the art that you are making it will only end in bitterness and unhappiness because art is a beautiful thing to make to create anything is beautiful your first audience is yourself one in a million yeah one in a million people gets really rich off of this kind of thing right so don't be one of the other people who have done it only for that reason because it's almost bound to end in failure whereas mm -hmm. if you are doing it for honest reasons you will always be happy with the art you're making, and that makes you a happy and better person. It's the morally right thing to do. Make art you believe in. Even if it's sarcastic lyrics that are nasty about people. <laughs> but if you are happy doing that, that then art is its own reward. So that's my that is the message. Art is its own reward. That is an incredible answer. And I'm I'm not at all surprised that that's the answer that you gave because I think that this could be said over your career. Very truthfully, you have made art that you are happy with. And when it sells, if it sells, all the better. 
but at the end of the day, you have to, we have to live with ourselves. And I love the fact that we have somebody who's attained your success level that would share that with younger artists, the, the notion of integrity, be true to yourself in art in and of itself is the reward. That's, that's a great answer. Uh, thank you. And don't think that's not what I've told people in, in you know, at Swarthmore when I was teaching creative writing and novels <laughs> and at Princeton where I was teaching a songwriting and lyric writing course with the poet Paul Muldoon. I mean, that's that's really my, the central message of my teaching courses. It's not something that I think people should hear. It's the truth. Right. The truth shall set you free. <laughs> <laughs> a few podcasts ago, I started ending my podcast with one random question. Here's the question I chose for you. I'm kind of curious what you'll say here. If your life story was going to be made into a motion picture, who would you want to play you? Who would you want to be Wesley Stace in your biopic? Okay. Well, assuming it's somebody who like, you know, so it can't be a woman. I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of Gary Oldman. Oh, yes. How about Gary Oldman? That's a great answer, actually. I'm stopping he's with brilliant. Gary Oldman because, you know, he's about my age. He could probably, he's a brilliant actor. It's not an he immodest good. thing to say. People used to say I look like George, you know, people used to say that I look like George Clooney, but that would be a very immodest answer, I think. I think George <laughs> Clooney should play me. And of course, this pertains to two I have a song called, you know, uh, uh, The Movie of Your Life on my second American record. In The Movie of Your Life, they'll get some real jerk to be you. Um, edited <laughs> edited till he can act just because of his TVQ. I love Leslie Howard. Leslie Howard. That's who I'd love to play. Meet Leslie Howard. Or Trevor Howard. Well, anyway. Or Mo Howard. That. Yeah. Ron Howard. <laughs> Curly <laughs> Howard. Howard, Howard. Any of the Howards. Yeah, and Howard, who married Henry VIII. <laughs> right. Well, Wesley, this has been an absolute blast. I am so glad you joined me. I, I appreciate so much your time, your willingness to sit down with me. I'm just very, very grateful for you. And, and your music means a lot to me. And I just cannot thank you enough for joining me today. Well, I'm, I'm incredibly glad that you asked. And um, uh, thank you to your listeners, any of whom look into my music any further. I appreciate it. Yes. So you can check out Wesley's music at Wesley Stace. That's spelled S-T-A-C-E dot com. All kinds of good things to discover there. Music and uh, you can get information on his Cabinet of Wonder shows. All of that stuff is there. And to everyone listening, thank you so much. If you've enjoyed my conversation with Wesley Stace on whatever platform you listen on, please consider following or subscribing to keep up with new shows. And kind reviews are ever so appreciated. And I look forward to our next journey to the stage. That's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>